Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back, everyone, to the New Books Network. This is Lee Pierce, uh, Assistant Professor at SUNY Geneseo in upstate New York, and I am very excited today to welcome Dr. Dave Tell with his new book, Remembering Emmett Till. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, Emmett Till is a rather iconic case in the history of race relations, both because it was a turning point in um a good historical moment for this sort of to have happened in public culture. It was also commemorated a lot. There's a really famous painting by Norman Rockwell that commemorated the event. And also because um, Emmett Till was quite young and he was very brutally murdered, ostensibly for hollering at a white woman in a public place. That's sort of the the down and dirty, although it's obviously more complex than that. And what happens is that in the book, um, Tell sort of takes up not just the historical case of Emmett Till, the way that a historian or a biographer uh, might, but he also takes up the practices of commemoration that have happened in the 50 years since Emmett Till since Emmett Till's death. And so you don't it's not just about what happened, it's also about what have we made made happen in the time since Emmett Hill passed as different agendas and different race relations have come to the fore in U.S. culture and why certain practices of remembering serve certain agendas. And in particular, the book's really fascinating because Dave looks at the way that um, commemorating Emmett Till has become an economic practice in the Mississippi Delta and the way that certain landmarks and certain economies have actually been built up and around Emmett Till. And so there's sort of this interesting tension about what it means to remember this figure of tragedy and is building an economy around that figure commemoration and the way we'd think of celebration and remembering an awful event? Or is it in fact like exploitative in the sense that we're building profit and loss around someone's tragedy? So similar to kind of what people have done with um, sites of remembrance around 9-11 or Katrina. And so it's a very thorny book. It's incredibly interesting. If you love Mississippi Delta geography, uh, the maps are wonderful. And overall, Dave's writing is just really, really worth reading. I will also say that Dave, true to his reputation as a super classy dude, is the first person to have ever inscribed to me an author's note in the actual book. So um, you won't get an autograph copy, but certainly I'm sure if you mail it to him, he'd be happy to autograph your copy. So with that, I will go ahead and welcome Dave. Are you here, Dave? I'm here. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show. I didn't ask your permission, but is it cool if I call you Dave? Yes, please do. Everyone else. <laughs> okay. Does. All right. I don't know. You know, some people like their their proper address. Well, that is my uh, down and dirty. Do you want to maybe do a quick intro of yourself? Um, pronouns, if you want them. I use she, they, but pronouns are up to you. If you want to just do a quick hello intro, who you are, and then maybe if there was anything you want to add or nuance about my, about my f- sort of fast and dirty summary of the intro to the book before we get started. Great. Well, uh, first, thanks for having me. Uh, My pronouns are he, him, his, and I've been writing about the commemoration of the Till murder for about 15 years now, but this project really got its start in 2014, and I wonder if I might just give a little bit of background about about the origins of the project and how it came to be that a white communication studies professor from the state of Kansas ends up devoting a vast majority of time to telling the story of Till's murder. Yeah, I really like for the authors to do most of the talking. So I will uh, jump in when you run out of stuff to say, but you should feel free to run with whatever you find interesting. The readers would much rather hear from you than me. So I first started reading or writing about Emmett Till in 2004. I wrote this piece on how one particular magazine article that came out five months after the murder ended up having a extraordinarily outsized influence on the stories that we have told ourselves about the night Till was killed. That that original article came out in my first book in 2012, and that's about the time I got tenure here at the University of Kansas, and I really thought I was done writing about Emmett Till. I I tried to write about a number of other things. I tried to write about the state of Kansas. I tried to write about cultural studies, and I tried to write about modern architecture. But unbeknownst to me, as I was trying and... and, uh, these other endeavors, that first article I wrote 
until commemoration started circulating among community organizers down in the Mississippi Delta. And unbeknownst to me as well was, in the meantime, there had been a nonprofit uh, got started in 2005. It's called the Emmett Till Memorial Commission of Tallahatchie County. And, and what was going on is there was a group of 18 local citizens in Tallahatchie County. And they were frustrated that no one was doing the work of commemorating Emmett Till. And so they organized themselves. They raised, uh, they got together and raised money. They got a $15,000 donation from Morgan Freeman. And with that money, they started to do something that had never been done before. That is put up signs in the Delta commemorating some of the sites of the Emmett Till murder. And this was revolutionary. I like to tell my students um, that 49 years and 11 months passed between the murder of Emmett Till and the first dollar ever dropped on Till commemoration in the Delta. So the commission got together, started putting up signs, and uh, your readers or your listeners might know what happened next. These signs started to be vandalized with some consistency. They were stolen. They were shot. They were replaced, shot again. Some of them were defaced with spray paint. Others were pulled from the ground. Still others were defaced with acid. And by 2014, the commission had reached this, uh, what would you say? They had reached this point where they didn't quite know how to proceed. And so they called a meeting uh, for August of 2014. The topic of the meeting was how to do the work of remembrance in the context of vandalism. To the meeting, they invited myself, my colleague from Florida State, Davis Hauck, a historian named Devery Anderson, the FBI agent who was then in charge of the case, a guy named Dale Killinger, and they invited members of the Till family, the Kellogg Foundation, and a few local organizers. And this group of, I don't know, 10-ish people, we spent two days together driving around the Delta, looking at the sites and talking about how to do the work of commemoration. And, and we had a very simple idea at the time. If people can shoot signs, maybe we could put the same information on a mobile application, like a smartphone app. And honestly, I was, I'm not being falsely humble here. I was the least qualified person in the room when the director of the commission asked who would help make a smartphone app. Uh, the FBI was there, the family was there, but I was the only one who raised my hand. And I thought this was going to be a side project. Um, but I committed in that summer of August, 2014, you know what, I will help them take this story that they're telling on old fashioned roadside markers and tell it on a GPS enabled mobile application. And, uh, sort of, we, we left and for a hot minute, Google got involved and they offered to make us a prototype free of charge. And, and if you've done this kind of work, you know, that one of the biggest hurdles to getting funding is having a prototype. So we jumped at this opportunity uh, to get a prototype from Google, but they had one string attached. They said, if we're going to make you a prototype for what, what we now call the Emmett Till Memory Project, they said, you need to commemorate 50 sites in the Mississippi Delta, and we only had five. And so the next summer, now it's summer 2015, I flew back down to Mississippi I rented a car and the executive director of the commission and I spent about 10 days in this car driving the whole width and length and depth of Mississippi. And we came up with 50 sites. Um, now, I, I bring this up because 50 sites is way too many. The prototype really wasn't very good for a lot of reasons. But spending 10 days with the director of the commission, driving from site to site to site, had a remarkable impact on my own sense of what happened in the 64 years since Till was murdered. Because at that point, I had been writing about the murder for 10 years. And honestly, I kind of thought I knew most of what was going on. But as I drove around the Delta, I kept being confronted with stories, uh, hard to believe stories, about how the people who lived closest to the murder were either dealing with or not dealing with the murder. And it was on that first 10-day road trip that I first realized, you know what, this is not just a side project to build a mobile app. This is actually a book project to tell the stories of how those in Mississippi are dealing with the legacy of the murder. Well, yeah, and it sort of gets at a really interesting question about space because on the one hand, 50, 50 places seems like a ton of places to try to gather because I was like laughing in my head because I was like, oh, we get to 45 and then we're run out and it's like, oh, place 46, uh, Emmett Till may or may not have chewed gum here, you know, so it's right, like this joke, right. but 
It's also the opposite, which is when you kind of do that work, like what space has not been touched by Emmett Till in the South, especially? So then yeah. 50 almost seems inadequate. So it's really interesting, that the tension there. Right. I mean, on some level, he's clearly, his story in particular has been infused into the South kind of writ large and our country writ large. But in another way, it's remarkable how confined and dense his story really is and how many spaces where it doesn't seem to register. Um, so, it, yeah, it was a, certainly a life-changing experience trying to figure out where Till's story registered, where it didn't. And, and, I mean, honestly, we had to stretch it. We did go to, like, graveyards of deceased relatives of people who played minor parts in the story to get our 50 sites. Um, but for what it's worth, the strategy worked. Uh, Google built us the prototype, and with that prototype, we were eventually able to fund the Emmett Till Memory Project, which is uh, you can download it for free wherever you get your apps. And, and if you download it today, it will take you to 18, it will use your GPS, take you to 18 sites related to the Mississippi Delta, related to the Till case. And the basic, one of the anxieties we had when we were making this app is that we didn't want it to, we didn't want to just put Till's story online in an electronic format. That didn't seem enough. We wanted to put it there in such a way that it would provoke people to actually think about the murder and engage it in a thoughtful way. And so the way we did that is this, we calibrated the story of his murder to wherever the user happened to be standing in the Mississippi Delta. So for example, if you open our app and you're standing at the courthouse where Till's murderers were tried and acquitted, you'll get the jury's version of the story. But if you are staying where the black press stayed, you'll get their version of the story. And those are very different stories. And there's no uh, quote unquote God button on the app that will tell you that will resolve all the difficulties for you. Our hope is that as you go from site to site to site, you're going to see the story change. And as you see the story change, you'll start to realize, you know what, this story has never been stable. It's always been been changed by people with various invested interests. Um, and really, that's the heart of the book, too, is is the one thing that sets Remembering Emmett Till, apart from every other book and documentary on the Till story, and there are plenty of other books, but what sets this one apart is that every other book focuses on the events of 1955, whereas I'm trying to trace what happened since 1955. I want to isolate the people who changed the story. I want to figure out why they changed it and who benefited from it. I want to figure out how the racial politics, not just of 1955, but of the 1980s, how did the racial politics of the of the uh, subsequent decades shift Till's story? Or how did the poverty of the Mississippi Delta or the path of its rivers, all these things played a role in kind of changing the story we think we know about Till's final night? Yeah, and it's cool you use the word calibrate because as I was reading the book, I don't normally read the uh, the acknowledgments. I'm sort of a lazy reader, but you you put the word calibrate actually in the first word of the acknowledgments. Hmm. Um and I remember seeing that word and thinking, so then I read the acknowledgments and thinking like, what a cool way, what a cool verb to think about what it means to do memory work in space that's also in time, that's also highly digitized. Yeah. Because that is a really good, because we have trouble like like giving language to like exactly what it means to participate in public memory, like at this moment when everything's so highly digitized. And I was actually thinking about uh, when I was reading the book, the, the, um, the Black Lives Matter central office has this remembering Trayvon project. And it's essentially for high school, high schoolers that on, I think it's January 13th, which unfortunately is, is before most college classes are back in session, but there are all these different social media projects and geographically based projects and, app, and like app based projects that you can do with your students so that they can kind of actively participate. They, they phrase it as actively participate in like remembering the like remembering the facts of Trayvon's life. Like, oh, go to a place where he loved to hang out or tweet about blah, 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 or post on social media, this, this, this. But of course, from a rhetorical perspective, what what you're actually doing when you encourage those kids to engage in those kinds of quote unquote, like remembering the fact projects is actually calibrate themselves in relationship to the present moment and how Trayvon, how they're going to bring Trayvon's legacy kind of into contemporary civil rights moments. And so it was cool to see a corollary between what you're doing in the book and, and a project that's sort of more contemporary, because it does really show that right what happened in 1950 is not is not all that there is to the deal. So it's nice that someone is bringing things into the contemporary moment 
Because remembering Emmett Till, of course, as you're arguing in the book, is an active, ongoing, contemporary practice. Right. And there are so many ways to make that point. I mean, only sort of the most material of which is that the families of Trayvon Martin and Emmett Till now spend holidays together. Right. So there is like, it's not just like a symbolic connection. There's a Mm -hmm. deeply personal connection. and, And at least for those closest to those stories, there's a real sense that the 1955 lynching of Emmett Till serves as a proto-history of what we now know as the Black Lives Matter movement or murders. Uh, yeah, and I noticed um, just just on the mem- just on the kind of the point about proper names, I noticed that you quote uh, Martin Luther King from 1963 at the front of the book about someone named Medgar Evers because he says uh, he names so Martin Luther King names Emmett Till and Medgar Evers in the same sentence in this quote and I I googled Medgar but it's interesting you know that you could have two people that like similar to Trayvon Martin and somebody like um like Michael Brown but then all of these other nameless people who have been the Emmett Tills but nobody remembers those names and so the other thing that's interesting about the book is like the ongoing practices of public space are how some names get remembered as part of history and others get forgotten, like Medgar Evers, who, you know, isn't a household name the way that Emmett Till is. Well, he will be soon. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because I, I, it was interesting to read about. I got I went down the Wikipedia rabbit hole on that one. I'm not I, I can't say this out loud, but there will soon be a feature length film that that uh, tells that that foregrounds the role of Medgar Evers in the Emmett Till trial. It's a little known fact that Medgar had just taken his uh, post as NAACP field secretary for Mississippi. And one of the first things out of the gate that happens is the Till trial. So he goes up to, um, he's down in Jackson. His office is right next to uh, where Jackson State is now. But he drives a couple hours up to Sunflower County and he puts on, he drives an old car, he puts on what he calls his sharecropping clothes and he walks the cotton fields of Sunflower County and actually plays a key role in finding some of the witnesses that eventually um, inform the black press and then the black press becomes the only party who in the course of the trial is telling the actual true story of what happened to Emmett Till. So Medgar played a key role in the trial and, and in some ways it's, it's, it's pitch perfect that when MLK gave that that speech in June of 1963, it was it was essentially a draft, a, a sort of dry practice run of the "I Have a Dream" speech. It's perfect that he put Emmett Till and Medgar Evers in the same uh, sentence, and and to me, it's also, and I talk about this in the introduction of the book, it's also strangely fitting that when King made the "I Have a Dream" speech famous on August 28, 1955. Uh, that's, of course, both the March on Washington and what would that be? 60, uh, 63, the eight year anniversary of the Till murder. Um, and it was actually the March on Washington was planned to coincide with the anniversary of the Till murder. But there's something strangely and sadly fitting that when he gave, made the speech famous, the line about Emmett Till and Medgar Evers got cut. Right. Sort of the moment. Fascinating. The civil rights movement like gets its famous speech. Emmett Till falls out of that speech. And to me, the fittingness is that, of course, it's going to be another 50 years before he's commemorated at all in the Mississippi Delta. And one wonders, or I wonder at least, how it would have been different had Martin Luther King not cut that line. Awesome question. It's like the Matrix. If I hadn't told you the vase was there, would you still have knocked it over? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) Well, this is so cool. And um, I normally say that I like to skip the background of how the book came into being, but this was by far the coolest book background I've ever I've ever had. And actually, you know, I don't want to presume too much, so why don't we rewind real quick? I think context probably explains it at this point, but why don't you just let the readers know who Emmett Till is, just to make sure that everyone's very clear on who we're talking about, including he was like 14, if I'm remembering correctly, right? In the summer of 1955, Emmett Till was a 14-year-old African-American boy living in Chicago. Summer school got out the end of July, and he took a vacation with his cousins to the Mississippi Delta, where a generation or two earlier, his entire family had had lived in the Delta. They were part of the Great Migration, and now he had lived in Chicago, but he still had kin in the Delta. So he went down to spend a week with his cousins. Uh, In the middle of that week, he and his cousins went to a rural grocery store called Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market. Uh, they were there to play checkers on the front porch while they waited for a juke joint to open. Uh, 
And while they were there playing checkers, Emmett Till went in the store. He was alone for a few moments with a 21-year-old shopkeeper, a woman named Carolyn Bryant. And we don't really know what happened in that store because Carolyn Bryant doesn't often talk. And when she does, it's unclear how much she can be trusted. And of course, Emmett Till is no longer with us. But we do know what happened when Emmett Till walked out of the store. Carolyn Bryant followed quickly thereafter, apparently to get a gun. And as she was walking past, Emmett Till whistled at her. He may or may not have known that that was an infraction of Jim Crow's social norms, but his cousins certainly knew. And they whisked him away uh, down a 2.8 mile gravel road to the, uh, the home where his uncle Mose Wright lived. The boys were terrified, but nothing happened for a few days. And they began to think maybe things would be all right. But three days after the events at the grocery store, Carolyn Bryant's husband, Roy Bryant, his half-brother, J.W. Milam, and a handful of accomplices kidnapped the boy. They tortured him so severely that six square inches of his skull fell free. They shot him. They attached his body to a cotton gin fan with a length of barbed wire, and they sank him in a Mississippi River. Three days later, a fisherman named Floyd Hodges, who actually just passed a month or so ago, uh, saw Till's body protruding from the water. A month later, two of the murderers, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam, stood trial. The trial has been called the first great media event of the civil rights movement. NBC flew a plane in and out of Mississippi every day to bring footage to the world. And at the end of the five-day trial, the 12 all-white, all-male jury returned. Uh, acquitted the two murderers. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. A month after the trial, an activist in Mississippi by the name of T.R.M. Howard. Howard, incidentally, was the one who recruited Medgar Evers to the movement. But Howard had been a key part of the trial. In fact, when Till's family came south from Chicago to attend the trial, they stayed with Medgar Evers because he lived in an all-black town. He had a 24-hour security guard, and he had guns stashed in every corner of his house. And, And so what that meant was safety. And so the Till family stayed with Howard, as well as all of the African-American witnesses who would eventually testify in the trial. But a month after the trial was over, Howard got in his car and drove a couple hours east and told Till's story from the pulpit of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where Martin Luther King had just assumed the pulpit. In the audience that night was a young woman named Rosa Parks, who three days later refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus and the civil rights movement as we know it was off and running. Like you may have had a couple of practices on that one. (laughs) I've told that that story a lot. That was beautiful. Oh, yeah. I got like chills running down my spine. I am actually doing, so side note about me, um, I'm actually writing an essay on this thing I've noticed lately that my students uh, all have these stickers on their laptops that say, nah, N-A-H in quote marks, like the word like nah oh, yeah, as in, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, and then the attribution Rosa Parks, 1964 or whatever. Yes. I saw this for the first time in an elementary school in Lawrence a couple months it's, ago. Yes. And it's become very common. And I think it's really interesting because the story of, of Rosa Parks, and I think this relates to Emmett Till because it sort of gets at the way that history is never history is never history is for so long, the story was that this weak, feeble, sad old lady was just so worn out that when the bus driver said, are you going to move or not? She uttered the simple defiant word, no. And the civil rights movement was born. That's the language that we use. And so the article is about what does it mean that now the defiant word is this kind of fatigued, worn out, like, nah, like this lukewarm, I don't feel like it kind of thing. And so... This is cool because the story of Rosa Parks gets so deeply intertwined with the story of Emmett Till, partially because it's really hard to know. Like we know for a fact that she heard Till's story and three days later refused to give up her seat. But of course, you can't really infer causality from that. But to this day, not to this day, actually, but between 2011 and 2017, there was a state funded historical marker in front of Bryant's Grocery, which said, Rosa Parks was thinking of Emmett Till when she refused to give up her seat on the bus. But the problem is she never wrote that down. Hmm, She wrote extensively about not giving up her seat, but she never mentioned Emmett Till. Now, she might have 
mentioned this in passing to either the Mississippi politician David Jordan or before that to Jesse Jackson. But if that happened, it was just like in conversation and there's no evidence. And um, in the summer of 2017, the state of Mississippi grew so concerned that maybe that wasn't after all fact that they took the Rosa Parks quotation off of the sign and replaced it with a quotation from Till's mother, Mamie Till. Mobley. So these are very, uh, as recently as 2017, these, these stories have been very intertwined. Hmm. Yeah. Um, this is, this is so cool. I'm really enjoying, I mean, I, I enjoyed the book, but the conversation has been even more exciting. All right, but we should get to the book because, <laughs> because we're almost at 30 minutes and all we've done is, is introduce each other to cool new ideas, which I don't mind, but it's not about me. So we are the new books network. So I know we are the new books network and the new new books network for books that aren't even out yet. And films apparently too, that we're previewing for years down the road. So for the reader, uh, the, the book is really interestingly organized. And I love thinking about how books are organized because it always suggests like the skill set of the, of the rhetorical scholars. Cause we're always so clever with how we organize our books. And this particular book actually looks at five um, you don't say acts of commemoration. You say accounts of commemoration of the crime. And so you divvy it up essentially spatially. So you talk about Sunflower County, you talk about Tallahatchie County in a couple of different contexts, and then this place called Glendora. So you have these different scenes. And like you said, each scene calibrates the story differently. And so readers are essentially put in all of these different subject positions, almost as if you were doing sort of a sliding doors thing where you went down multiple paths if you played different characters like an Emmett Till movie, right? Yep. So it's yep. really, really fascinating. And I imagine it kind of mimics the logic of the app in some ways. Yeah, for sure. Both are both are cued to the different spaces and and goes back to what you said earlier about uh, a a well-calibrated story. I just want to sort of connect that we have Emmett Till stories. I want to connect them to the storytellers and not suggest that these stories just kind of float down uninfluenced by whoever happens to be telling them and wherever they happen to be telling them from. Yeah. Well, the book does a great job of that. I mean, it's incredibly personalized, but not in a, um, not in a way that you can't take out the larger lesson. So I really think it balances the personal and the political like very nicely, at least for me as a reader. So we have two choices. One is we can kind of move through the book as you designed it to give the readers kind of a lay of the land and little juicy tidbits so that they can decide for themselves if they want to read the full book, which they should, but they can decide for themselves. Uh, or if you'd like to actually dive into any particular favorite chapter or moment or case study or interview or argument that you just really think ca- encapsulates the best parts of the book. Hmm. So I like a lot of it, and I'm open to do whatever you <laughs> I sh- I want I sure hope here. so. I liked a lot of it, too. Um, well, um, if that's the case, I really love the chapter about ruins and restoration and money. Mm, and I also I like liked that. it because it, it deviated from the logic of the other chapters in that it's the only one without a proper name, technically. What do you mean? Um, so, well, money, right, ruins and restoration and money, but money is also money, as opposed to Glendora, Tallahatchie, Tallahatchie, Sunflower, which all are like actual counties without sort of like their name doesn't mean other things. I, I so see. I just thought it was so cool because like it kind of, entendre. yeah, kind of, it kind of sticks out as like this unique chapter. And also I like that it gets at this sort of the economic theme of the book that I really found fascinating because we'd off, we'd, we often think of practices of memorialization as uh, reactive, but in this case, they're actually shaping new realities in terms of the economy of the Mississippi Delta. Yeah. So group, I thought I really like that part. So if there's anything in that particular part you want to dive into, or I can give you a quote to jump off of, or I'm I'm game for whatever. So this, I'm glad you picked it. It's one of my favorites too. And the New York Review just labeled it the best chapter. So let's run with the money chapter. Um, and a great way into this is to tell you what happened last week. Are you there, Lee? What happened last week? Yeah, sorry, my computers went to sleep there. That's okay. Um, You're allowed to look stuff up. <laughs> no, last so two weeks ago, actually, I was in Mississippi for the dedication of a new Emmett Till sign, and I was there with a reporter from the Huffington Post. I don't know if you know him. His name is Jahan Jones. He has a long history of writing on race in America. He's great. Uh, when he got back to New York, uh, New York City, where he lives from Mississippi, he put this tweet up on Twitter and. The tweet said, powerful time in Mississippi. He's like, here I am at Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market, the place where Emmett Till whistled and the civil rights movement started. And then he put a picture up there, but the picture was not of Bryant's Grocery. He put a picture of the wrong building because 67 feet south of Bryant's Grocery, which is in ruin, 
is this beautifully restored old gas station called Benroy's Service Station. And, and when Jahan Jones went there, he saw the sign. The sign happens to be directly in the middle of these two buildings. And he just assumed that the well-restored building was the historic building. But that's not the case. And so what this, what this chapter does is tell the story of how it is that the town of Money, which only has two storefronts left on its main street, one of which is the origin of the civil rights movement, the other which has no civil rights history. How did that mm. come to be that the mm-hmm. wrong building mm. got commemorated? And, and the plot even thickens still would realize that the gas station, which has no civil rights history, was actually commemorated with a grant. And I'm going from memory here, but the name of the grant is called Mississippi Civil Rights Historical Sites Grant. And so you're like, wait, what? And, and so I... Uh, I started sniffing around and this was actually one of the first stories that caught my attention back in 2015. And, and, uh, so I went down to Jackson and, you know, if they're funded with state money, there's a paper trail. You just got to go find it. And, uh, I learned that Ben Roy's service station was restored with a grant written by Marionette Morgan, who's the granddaughter of Ray Tribble and Ray Tribble, uh, was a juror on the 1955, trial of Till's killers. He voted to acquit the murderers in 1955. And until his dying day, Ray Tribble believed that the murderers were innocent and the body planted by the NAACP. Oh, and that, oh, that's crazy. To fast forward 55-ish years, it's 2011, the state of Mississippi puts out this call for projects. They have this big grant fund. It's like, it's a one-time fund designed to commemorate or sort of to mark the 50-year anniversary of the Freedom Rides. And of all people, the Tribbles put in for a grant, but they, uh, for the town of money, but they do it for Ben Roy's. And here's the justification. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm almost quoting. I'm not, I'm not reading, so I can't be totally sure, but this is almost verbatim. They said, in 1955, people gathered at the gas station to talk about Till's murder. And, yeah, and like, yeah, end apparently of to talk about how it wasn't the murderer's fault. <laughs> well, most likely. Um, and, but that's all it took. Like that was, if you look in the records, the only sort of argument they have is that people talked about the Till murder uh, from Ben Roy's service station. And they also kind of said, you know what, Ben Roy's is going to be like a, I think the word they use is like a visitor center or a cultural center from which people can visit the store and learn their, or visit the gas station look at the store, which is 60 feet away, and learn their civil rights history. The tragic part is that they didn't follow through. They didn't make it a visitor Mm -hmm. center. They put in uh, all this sort of old-time Americana, these cash registers, wheelbarrows, Mm -hmm. wash bins, gas pumps, Coca-Cola signs, you know, sort of 1950s Americana, everything to sort of paint a picture of what a uh, glorious time the 1950s was and there was really no well i should say they did they did promise to acknowledge the fact of segregation and this probably wasn't the best idea but there hmm. it was their only idea they said they would sort of <laughs> uh return the jim crow signage that once marked the bathrooms as colored and white they said they would put that back up and that would be like a reminder to people so they would know how it used <laughs> to be like in segregated times hmm. um but they, I guess a couple of things, they make segregation seem rather charming. They, they talk about how right, there's yeah. this jukebox on the front porch and on like weekend nights after the long work day, blacks and whites alike would gather on the front porch of Ben Roy's and shed their blues by listening to the jukebox. But then when they actually uh, completed the renovation in 2014, they didn't even put up the signs. <laughs> And so what, what we have, and if you were to travel there today, you'll see a beautiful building filled with Americana, all of which mm-hmm. is sort of suggests this nostalgic sort of leave it to beaver, 1950s, good old days, none of which has any connection to either Emmett Till or the civil rights movement or the building mm-hmm. to its north. And the tragedy is like, if Emmett Till had not been killed, Benroy service station would still be a ruin. Like that's how they got the grant money. But then they used the grant money to tell a story of this racially charmed 1950s in which blacks and whites just hung out together socially. And so it feels like they kind of took civil rights money, but put it in the service of a, uh, 
of racially promiscuous uh, Saturday nights that never happened. Mm. And also, and this is a line that thankfully uh, the University of Chicago let me keep, but other editors have made me cut. Um, I can't look at Benroy's service station without seeing what might be the perfect example of what red-capped Trump supporters see when they look backwards to a once great America. Oh, yeah. Hmm. They see like service stations and, and, and more broadly an entire infrastructure that was made possible by race. Right. Yeah. From, from which all evidence of race and violence has been completely erased. And it's like only by erasing that legacy of violence could you ever sort of posit 1950s America as a bastion of greatness. Yeah. I mean, there's just, oh, and the town's called money. I mean, it's just so good. Like it's, you can't write this. You can't you make can. this stuff up. <laughs> yes, that's true. You cannot make it up. And like there's, this is the kind of story when I started to like hear whispers of this, and this is kind mm. of how my method worked. I would go there. I would talk to people. People would say, Hey, you, you get a load of this story. And then what I would do is like, no, I haven't heard that. Then I'd go down to Jackson. I'd pull the archives and I'd start to document what was otherwise just sort of circulated in whispers. Yeah. Well, and you have this great line. Um, and just for the reader real quick. So the book, so, so the book actually includes photos of, of this. So it's, it's kind of hard to imagine. I'm staring at the photos right now on page uh, 162, but you can see a picture of the Bryant's grocery store in 1955. And then you see what it looked like in 1993, very dilapidated. Uh, it's, it's basically almost broken down. And then the photo in 2018 is really just the ruins. I mean, you don't even know what it is anymore. And then of course you flip the page and there is the 2014 picture of this Benroy service station that yeah that looks like this weird mix of like 50s gas station americana like you might see um like uh, like in back to the future when they do the 50s yeah, but then yeah. this odd looking sort of bureaucratic visitor center type structure and it yeah. just it's it's perfect yeah perfect and awful all at the same time and and i don't remember if you could see it in that picture but in 2011 the state of mississippi did put up their first freedom trail marker sign right in mm-hmm. front of well to commemorate Bryant's grocery. But the but the reason Jahan Jones got so confused is that the marker is exactly 33 and a half feet from each building. And you're like, okay, well, why didn't right. they put it in front mm. of the building? Yeah. And the answer is, if you don't want to ask permission of the Tribbles, then you have to yeah. put it on the right away. Yeah. And the result is, it's completely ambiguous. Right, right. Well, and I want to and I want to push on that word ambiguous really quickly because, of course, what winds up happening with and, and I get this feedback from interviews sometimes is someone will be like, "Well, nobody intended to do this," and so as rhetoricians, here's the deal: maybe somebody intended to do it because economic profit and and erasing race, right? Or maybe this logic is so seeped into our collective unconscious that they put up this sign motivated by all of these factors and didn't even realize what they were doing. Either way, you got a sign marking a freedom trail that is equidistant between two buildings (laughs) who send very different messages about racial history. Uh, Whether someone meant to or not, like the point of being a rhetorician is that we just don't think this stuff happens by accident, but that doesn't mean it happened, quote unquote, on purpose. It's actually in some ways far more deep seated than that. And even if it didn't happen on purpose, Mm -hmm. I mean, we can always, far more important, I, for me, at least, and I imagine for you also, is it did happen, and it's and the fact right. that it did has right. consequences that we can yes. map. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. I feel like rhetoric is far more about tracing the consequences of these choices than trying right. to figure out if they were uh, in the cards from the beginning or whatnot. Yeah, but it's a common pushback we get, which is like, well, you don't have any evidence that this triple guy did this on purpose, and I'm like, do I not have evidence? But even if he didn't do it on purpose, I have evidence that it happened, and. You judging by you know judging by Jahan's visit to the site, if he is exemplary of all of the other visitors, he's getting indoctrinated into a different, right, calibrated into a certain version of historical memory about this case that is different than the one that, right, obviously, like civil rights activists would want people to get. And I will say that we might have more evidence of intention here than in other cases because uh, mm-hmm, I think I, so. I do have all the grant files and all the mm-hmm, applications. Yeah. Of- that the Tribble family filed with the Mississippi Department of yeah. Archives and History. And they're very clear about what they're they're yep. trying now. Who knows if they're lying, but we at least have yeah. statements from them about why they're doing this. 
Yeah. Well, and you have this beautiful sentence um, underneath the picture of the 1955 Bryant's grocery store that I actually had earmarked. So this, I'm glad we got a chance because I wanted, I do like to read a couple of quotes because the writing in this book is so beautiful that it it sucks that I'm then hatching it by, but by paraphrasing. Oh, so um, this particular quote says, judging by the ever increasing number of visitors to the site, meaning the 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 site where the the two the two buildings the dilapidated and the new one are it seems as if the structural integrity of Bryant's grocery store stands in an inverse relationship to its symbolic value <laughs> the greater the ruin the more potent the memory site it's just really good i love that so, sentence so another sense i like is um very closely related to that i think there's a strong parallel between the fate of the store and the fate of Emmett Till's story. And what I mean by that is both of these things have been ignored for years, but the impact of that, of people ignoring both the store where he whistled and the story of his murder, both of those have sort of increased their effective power partially because they've been ignored. And and I feel like this, that ruins really captures that. Like ruins are both like, ruins are evidence of how, in this case, the state of Mississippi has ignored both the store and Till's story. But as they do it, the story becomes more gripping with every passing year that it's ignored. And I feel like the ruins are kind of a perfect metaphor for that that complex set of uh, things that are going on. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, and this, and, and just for the reader, this is like four pages <laughs> of the book, right. That we just covered. I, I mean, at every turn, it's the same argument in some ways about the way that this, I forget what you call it. I think you call it like an ingredient or something. The way that the, the memory site is an ingredient of the memory work, but it's the same argument, but at every moment, the way the work is being done is so different and nuanced. I just, it was so fun. And you can really feel yourself kind of in these spaces. I mean, it makes me want to get the app and like drive down there and, and go around. I may actually do that just because I'm so captivated by the book. Uh, do you want to, we are coming up on 40 minutes though, and I want to be respectful of listeners time. So do you want to take the last couple minutes to move to maybe another part of the book or other directions for the project or really anything else that you think would round out the discussion? Mm-hmm. So I guess my other favorite chapter is chapter five. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Yeah, Glendora I love chapter story. five. So Glendora, I mean, there's two things you know about it. First, it has the greatest density of till commemoration anywhere in the world. It's a town of five streets and 18 Emmett Till signs, in addition to the only museum in the world that's entirely dedicated to Till's story. So just an incredible density of commemoration. But it's also incredibly poor. It's so poor that in 2010, the state of Mississippi sent a team of economic development experts to try and rescue the town from poverty, but they couldn't come up with anything. In fact, I'm not exaggerating when I say they're only feasible suggestion was that the town of Glendora capitalize on its connection to the Till case. More more signs, Mm -hmm. more museums would mean more tourists, more tourists would mean bring more money. None of that was news to the mayor, a a guy named Johnny B. Thomas, who's been mayor without interruption since 1982. And Johnny B. Thomas has been trying really hard to, uh, to, to double down on Till's story. He tells a, a, an odd version of the story, which may well be true. It's plausible, but it's, it's unusual in that Till is thrown into the river from inside the city limits of Glendora and in which the fan that held him in the water was stolen from the Glendora cotton gin. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for the town of Glendora and for Mayor Thomas, the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, who gives out all the Emmett Till money, simply doesn't believe anything that Mayor Thomas says. And so what, what's going on here is Mayor Thomas has one state agency telling him to double down on the Till story and another state agency refusing every single grant application. And like, these are not competitive grants. The Department of Archives and History has funded every single Emmett Till grant in the last 20 years, even the Ben Roy's grant, but they have not funded Mayor Thomas. Which which also reinforces the sharp relief with what, like it brings in a sharp relief the fact that the Ben Roy's grant was funded, right? It's yeah, like, I know. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, I it's nuts. Mm-hmm. And so Mayor Thomas has gotten creative and this is honestly really where he shines. So for example, he built the museum with a grant from the United States Department of Agriculture and, of and, all things. And roll back because we're jumping into the Ethic Museum, but they don't know, what, the, the listeners don't know what that is. Oh, sure. So uh, in two thousand. Five, uh, Mayor Thomas, it's it sort of to try and bring more tourists. He built the only 
museum in the world that's entirely about Till's story. It's called the Emmett Till Historic Intrepid Center. The locals just call it the Ethic Museum. Um, but the question is, if the historic the archives and history is not funding him, how does he do this? Well, he can't get a grant for history, but he can get a grant for poverty alleviation. So he gets this USDA grant that's intended to fund internet access. It's funded at like $325,000. Right. And in the, in the book, is this, this is the one you reference as part of the Obama Reinvestment Act of 09, or is this yes. different? Yep. Okay. This okay. It. He gets the grant. He fires his contractor. He hires some members of his own family. And what he does is he takes the local cotton gin and he turns half of it into a computer lab, which the USDA knew about. But he turns the other half into an Emmett Till Museum. And while the USDA must have ex- approved the expenses, there's no evidence that they ever knew that USDA money was building an Emmett Till Museum. They kept over 700 pages related to this grant, including the application, correspondence, invoices. And in those 700 pages, the name of Emmett Till is never once mentioned. Now, that's what opens the museum. The question is what keeps it going? Because the grant runs out after two years, they can't pay their bills, and the internet service is almost immediately suspended. But the museum is still going strong. Here's why. It's because Mayor Thomas runs 24 Section 8 apartments. Uh, According to public records, those apartments pull about $100,000 of federal HUD money. With that money, Mayor Thomas maintains the apartments, pays city workers, and subsidizes the museum, which otherwise would have been in the red every single year. The point I like to emphasize, people always ask me, like, well, is he telling the truth? Because in the museum, he says, you know what, Till was dropped in the river from Glendora, and the fan came from Glendora, and people always ask, well, is that true? My answer is maybe. I actually don't know. It, it, It seems plausible. But my real point is regardless of whether or not that story is true, I just want to emphasize that it's the poverty of the Mississippi Delta that is changing the story we think we know about Till's last night. Because these stories about the Glendora Cotton Gin and about being thrown in the river there, they continue to circulate most recently in a a very high-profile article from the New York Times. But at the root of those stories is not the archives and history. It's simply the poverty of the town that the mayor has been able to leverage to tell his own unique stories that he thinks will in turn bring more grant money. Well, and it also points to like, we, th- we think of historical commemoration, not you and I, but like collectively, we think of historical commemoration as like an equal opportunity practice, right? Someone dies, you remember the facts, you think about them, you talk about how bad it was. But really what you're showing here is that commemoration is like a deeply privileged practice because if you live in an affluent, you get to choose what gets commemorated and what doesn't, and you have the power to commemorate how you wish. But whether or not he, this, this Mayor Thomas is telling the truth or not, he, he because he's restricted by poverty, which is often, of course, deeply like raced poverty, you know, he has to, he can't, he doesn't have the same privilege of like finding the truth as everyone else does because the truth is not on his side because let's suppose he is wrong and the murder didn't happen inside of the town lines. Or there's a part in here about the bridge that's, that's very controversial, too, that we'll skip over. But he can't afford, nor can his people that he protects afford, to let the, the truth be the truth. I love your line about how commemoration is a privileged activity. And that brings us up. This will be a great place to end, Lee, because that great. brings us up to... This past Saturday, yeah, when a neo-Confederate group called the League of the South staged mm-hmm. a publicity stunt in front of one of the Emmett Till signs, and they just they 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 created their own little video. Uh, don't look them up. I don't want them to get the traffic. But what they said on the video, it's like, don't look them up. Right. <laughs> we don't do not want them to get the traffic. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. What they said on this video was. This is an Emmett Till marker. It's it's how it's what it represents what the civil rights movement means for black people. And then they said, what we want to know is where are all the signs commemorating the white people who have been murdered, assaulted and raped by black people. And that, I mean, underscores uh, just how much uh, privilege cuts through the act of commemoration, because. I have a hunch that you and I and most people who would read my book will see immediately the false equivalency between those two acts of commemoration, right? That even if these people could identify particular acts of black on white violence, the sovereignty has the sovereignty commission, for example, has never funded or given cover 
to white violence, nor has the police looked the other way, nor has the government supported black on white violence. It's always gone the other direction. And so when I saw that video, I just like, it just sort of cut me to the quick about how much the simple act of commemoration is an act of privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's good. Oh, this book. Uh, yeah, I wish we had time, but I, you know, I'm one of those like quality over quantity type people. So with that, I will wrap up quickly. Um, just with a couple of things. So I just want to remind everyone that this is Dave Tell and the name of the book is Remembering Emmett Till. And if I'm remembering the name of the app correctly, it is the Emmett Till Memory Project. Yep. And so you can, I'll put that in the show notes if anyone would like to look at the app. And I do like to remind people that um, this is a university press book. It's published by the University of Chicago Press. And the university uh, presses are very important to the work that we do as academics. So if you are interested in the book, even if you don't want to obtain a personal copy, it's great if you could ask either your college or your local public library to have a book um, in process, especially if you have a library that does any kind of civil rights display or commemoration around different holidays. This would be a great book to add to the collection. It helps uh, support the work. We do not make money off of these books, and the New Books Network is entirely nonprofit. So every time a library does pick up the book, it not only helps spread this obviously very important message, but it helps keep these university press and the academics um, continuing to, to turn out really important work like this. So with that said, thank you again, University of Chicago Press. And I always like to ask our author if they have any recommendations for the next book on the New Books Network. So I just uh, have been working through a book called Resisting Brown, Race, Literacy, and Citizenship in the Heart of Virginia. It's by a woman named Candace Epps Robertson. She is, a, I think I have this right, assistant professor of English at the University of North Carolina. Awesome. I will. I will. I wrote it down on my notepad and I will get in touch with them. And I have actually a recommendation for you. It was one of the first interviews I did in New Books Network last year, and it is called Second Skin. It's by Ann Chung, and it is about the intersection of Josephine Baker, race, and modernism and architecture. I know this book. Uh... It, have you read it? I've read parts of it. Oh, okay, good. Because it's yeah. incredible. And the chapter about the house, I can't ever remember the name of these people, but some famous French architect built Josephine Baker or designed Josephine Baker like this house made of skin. Oh, I don't remember this. Book. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, but I know you're into architecture and obviously yeah, that's yeah. that's uh, that resonates well with the book. Plus, I like to plug the books that I do because if no one's listened to that interview, um, there is an interview about it on the channel in New Books, New Books in Language. So with that, we will wrap up. Dave, this was awesome. Thank you again. I mean, this book ha- must have taken so much work and investment, and it really pays off on the on the reading end, for sure. Well, I appreciate your taking the time to do this. Yeah, and I will see you at NCA in two weeks, I think, right? I will be there one week. Oh, one week? Oh, my gosh. I know. It's snowing outside already. I'm, I'm surprised I can't remember that it's almost the end of November. Oh All right. Well, ha- take care, stay warm, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Lee.